It's a joy for us every Sunday, is it not, to dig into the Word of God, one passage after another. While we have a life and breath, until the Lord Jesus comes back, we love to study the Bible because it tells us all about our Savior Jesus Christ and how He overcame our sin and brought salvation for us. So this is a great joy and privilege to be able to do every week, text by text. Uh, this morning I'm going to start out in a little, little bit of a different way than normal. I want to start by reading through the text of 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, uh, the next two sermon texts. And I want to ask you what impression you get. Now, you're not going to be able to respond publicly, uh, but at least in your own mind. What impression do you get when you work through these verses? Um, how do they strike you? How do they read? So uh, let me read 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As you go through this text, what impression does it make on you? Uh, does it seem to be a collection of various things brought together? Uh, if you were to look at this passage in close detail, you would see that there are 15 different commands or imperatives given here. Sometimes people read this text and others like it near the end of, it, of an epistle and think it's, you know, it's kind of like the shotgun approach. Like just a bunch of BBs spread out and it's going to hit everyone. One of these commands will, have to, will be something you'll have to work on or maybe more. And so does it feel like the letter's winding down and this is just like a random collection? Or is there something more to it? And I, I think that there is. Instead of this being kind of a hodgepodge of different commands thrown together by the Apostle Paul, this is actually a part of a set outline of teaching from the Apostle Paul to the churches that he addressed. So this is very important material. As a matter of fact, turn over for one second just to Romans 12, and I want to show you one uh, other text that's similar. And Pastor Paul read part of this, so we don't have to read all of this together, but Romans chapter 12, and as you read it, I have a, a slide here I want you to consider 1 Thessalonians 5, we saw all those commands. Now we're going to look at Romans 12 and just read a few verses. And I want you to see that Paul has a set 
collection of commands that he will use often with letters or with, with people in churches that he addressed. Look at verse 9, Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We'll just stop there. Okay, and I want you to see that uh, in this text, in reverse order, Paul has a lot of the same commands. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace. In Romans 12.18, peace with all is Paul's challenge. uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, do not repay evil for evil. He says the same thing in Romans 12. He says rejoice always in Romans 12. He says rejoice in hope. Pray without ceasing. Be constant in prayer. Doesn't that sound very similar? Do not quench the spirit in Romans 12. Be fervent in spirit. It's like the opposite. Hold fast to that which is good. This is repeated in both texts. Abstain from evil. Abstain from that which is evil. So what I want to suggest is, and you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5, is that what we have in this text uh, is a bit of a catechism from the Apostle Paul. These are important commands that he emphasizes in all the churches with which he worked. Now, it appears, however, that Paul adapts this list at times, and he addresses specific needs in some of the churches that he addresses, like the Thessalonian churches. So there'll be some unique commands too, and I'll point that out as we go through the text and we see this. Now, I think the main point of the beginning of these commands in verses 12 through 18 has to do with the Thessalonians putting value on being rightly related to others. Because I'm going to pull verses 12 through 18 together. I'm going to say this is one section of commands And that Paul's concerned about the way they would relate to other people. He'll specifically talk about three relationships which must be important for the Thessalonians. Okay, And so this text will confront believers who think that we can be everything God wants us to be without valuing Christian relationships. Uh, From time to time I'll hear a believer say something like this. If it weren't for other people, I think I could live the Christian life quite well. You ever said that or heard anyone say something like, if it weren't for other people, I could do this. Well, that's entirely wrong. To be what God wants you to be, you must commit to right relationships in the body. And I want to dig into verses 12 and 13. And I've got three points this morning. First, we'll look at right relationships with our leaders. 
So Paul's going to look at three different relationships for the Thessalonian believers. First, with our leaders, look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Here, Paul talks about being rightly related to church leaders. In these verses, Paul will describe what the leaders do and how the church is supposed to respond to them. So we first look at the activity of the leaders. Um, Now, it's interesting to me as I go through just these two short verses, this is a small glimpse into the leaders of the church of Thessalonica. I'm a bit frustrated because I have a lot of questions that aren't answered. Like, who is he talking about here? I wish he would like give the names of the Thessalonian uh, church leaders. There are just a lot of questions I have. And if it wasn't even their names, how were they appointed? Is Paul talking about like pastors or deacons? And, and if he's talking about pastors, which I think he is, and I'll talk to you about this as we go through the text, um, how did these leaders get put in place? I mean, Paul was only there for three weeks. Did he set up pastors when he left? And, or did Timothy or did someone? I got all these questions. But what the text does focus on is what these leaders do. And I think it's very important for us to see. It gives three parallel participles to show us what they do. They labor among you. They are over you or they rule over. And then third, they admonish you. Okay, and this would be very important for us to consider for a moment because this is what you should expect out of your pastors or elders. And if you're a pastor and elder here today or listening to the sermon, this is what we should be doing. First, he says, they labor. This means to toil, to strive, or to struggle in work. I think I felt the weight of this as I was thinking about it this, this week. To, they labor among you. Where labor means or involves diligent, strenuous work which often leads to weakness and exhaustion. As I looked at other texts where labor is used, often there's weakness and exhaustion associated with the type of work that's being described. And so to the leaders of the church, I remind you or us that it is not an easy job. It requires diligence. Many times, I think, Leaders of the church should go to bed and wake up in the morning thinking about the church and relationships in the church. Includes long hours, diligent work in planning and serving and praying and caring and strategizing and studying and preaching. That's labor. As this labor involves, one man said, preaching and teaching, individual discipleship, training, you see that in chapter 2, supporting the poor, you see that in 2 Thessalonians, and practicing pastoral care. I love how Paul describes this, and it's a good reminder to all of us who are preachers or teachers of Scripture. He describes this labor as being among them. You see that? So it's not this like this ivory tower, like I'm going to study and study and study and never spend time with people. No, it's laboring among the believers. So pastors, if you feel that your work is exhausting and strenuous, I say, good. Perhaps you're engaging in labor. If you're exhausted at the end of a long day of counseling a disciple and discipling and praying and studying and preaching, good. 
that is laboring among the people. Now, if you pastor, don't think that it's that hard. Then I would say you should probably get busy laboring among the people. So they labor among us. But notice the second thing that Paul, the second way Paul describes these leaders, they rule over or they are over in the ESV. Although pastors willingly serve the congregation, the position carries an element of authority or supervision. Paul uses a unique word here. It's not used very often, this this word are over. There's one word behind it or rule over in some of your Bibles. What I did see this week is that that word is used in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 to describe the way elders who should be counted worthy of double honor rule over or lead congregations. This is one of the reasons I think that when he's describing church leaders here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he doesn't come right out and tell us pastors, but I think they're at least included in the group, okay, and that he's describing potentially pastors here. They are over you, the text says. They lead you. And so as a congregation, a congregation I've grown to love in these three years, you are to recognize that and to honor that. I think it would be unwise for you to reject this description. They are over you. And I think it's going to be hard for you to trust pastors or leaders in this way because of the sort of culture and world in which we live today. Okay, so we live in a culture and a time when people challenge authority and cause us to reject it. Okay, and so uh, yet what we need to remember is that God has organized it this way, and to reject this is to reject God's word. Now, I think Paul describes leaders in the church in various ways. In this text, he says, they are over you. I love 1 Corinthians 3, and I think it's a good reminder to leaders in the church. In that text, he's talking about Paul and Apollos, and they're not pastors, but they're apostles. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul asks, what is Paul and what is Apollos? Sets this up, you'd think he should ask who, but he asks what, and then he answers it. They are servants. Okay, so they're texts of Scripture in the New Testament, I think primarily maybe for the perspective of the leaders in the church, that reminds them, you are under the church. You serve the church. You serve God. You serve the church. But there are texts like this one as well that say that leaders in the church are over, are over the assembly. So they labor among the assembly. They are over the assembly. And then there's one other description here. They admonish us. They warn us. This word speaks of the responsibility of church leaders to admonish, encourage people with the word of God. This is part of my calling as a pastor and all of our pastors calling. When people step out of line, leaders in the church must come alongside of them. And prayerfully encourage sometimes, and other times warn, admonish. This is what elders do. This is what they should do. But then Paul lays out the responsibility of the Thessalonians. There are two responses that he requires of them. As you think of church leaders, response number one, we must respect leadership. 
Uh, you see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Uh, we ask you, brothers, to respect those. The word respect here means to, could be translated to recognize or acknowledge them. I think it, it speaks of both our commitment to understand our leaders uh, and their labor that they perform for us and to respect them. But he continues in verse 13. He gives another response. He says in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, and, and this uh, part of the passage gets really excessive. Paul's communicating the idea of abundance, and I, I think you can feel this in your English Bible. He says very highly, it's like not just highly, right? <laughs> you, you feel this, very highly in love, and then I think he gives us a reason why we should treat them this way, because of their work, because of the nature of their call and what they're tasked to do. So we should esteem them very highly in love. Okay, so regardless of your personal views of your pastors, remember, God has called them. The church has confirmed them. They are shepherding God's church, and one day they will give an account to God for how they, they shepherded. So... The text here, I think, is clear. We respect and esteem them very highly in love. I think although this is true, we can often complain about people in church leadership who labor for us. Sometimes we even compare them to others who might be more talented or gifted in certain ways. He's not the preacher of so-and-so or whatever, and I think sometimes that's unfair. This is not new. I was, I was reading this week uh, about Benjamin Franklin one of the founders of uh, our country, and uh, his review of the preaching of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an evangelist. Perhaps you've, you've seen this before in different places, but uh, Franklin was explaining the, the power of Whitfield in his preaching. And uh, he claimed that when you would listen to one of Whit, when you'd listen to Whitfield preach, that you could easily tell the difference between a new sermon and one that he had previously delivered. Uh, he explained this to many people. He said that the latter, you know, ones he had previously given, were high-polished, with good content, delivery, had a tremendous impact on the audience, even upon someone as skeptical as Benjamin Franklin. I mean, there was one time he said, I went to a service when Whitfield was preaching. I knew what he was going to be speaking on, and I went. I decided beforehand I would not give anything to support the project, uh, monetary project that he was trying to raise money for. And then he said, but then Whitfield just turned on this eloquence, and he walked through it, and he said, by the end, I emptied all of my pockets out into the play. Okay, but Franklin was not afraid to undermine the ministry of George Whitfield and explain away his effectiveness as being possible only because of the benefits of preaching the sermon often. Okay, so... I would say this is nothing new. If, if we are not careful, we can easily undermine the ministry of our church leaders in the same way. Instead, this text says we are to know them or respect them and to honor them on account of the work that they are doing. This is a way for, for us to worship and obey God. Okay, now... Let's move along to the second relationship, right relationship with other believers. And we'll have to get moving quickly here. Right relationship with other believers. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, be at peace among yourselves. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this is my second point. Paul's concerned with harmony or right relationships with other believers. And he, he lays out here kind of an inspirational vision for what the church at Thessalonica should be. He gives six commands. I'll just go very quickly through them. He says, first, you're to strive to be at peace with other believers. And I I think that this is kind of a header for the rest of the section that follows. Uh, That's at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, Some people, as they come to this command, they think that Paul's still describing the way that they should treat the pastors or leaders in the church. But I think it's better to see it as this is the way you are to be treating each other striving to be at peace with one another, which, by the way, when you do that, you are serving pastors, let me just tell you. You're striving to live at peace in accord with one another. That's a great gift to any minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, as we go through this text, that's kind of like a header, but then he gives these very specific commands. You see them? He says, verse 14, admonish the idol. I just want to point out a few things here. One of the questions I want to answer is, who are the idle? Who are they? What can we learn about them? Because it's just a small little phrase. And I want to suggest that if you were to write in your Bible, next to the idle, if you were to write 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, that you would be describing the idle people that Paul's addressing here. Okay? You remember back in chapter 4, Paul says that they were to show brotherly kindness to each other and brotherly love to each other and demonstrate kindness and that they were to work with their own hands. Remember this passage? And then he talks about some who would not work. He'll talk about them again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And so who are the idle? I think it's specifically people who are idle. They're not busy at work supporting themselves. And so Paul makes it very clear. What we should do is we should be admonishing those sort of people. That's our challenge in rightly relating to other people in the church. When people in our assembly are not living with purpose, not moving, they're idle, and specifically not faithfully working to support themselves and their families, we should come alongside of them and admonish them, the text says. But then you go to the third command right after this in verse 14. And I ask you, who are the faint-hearted? Because there he says, encourage the faint-hearted. It could be translated those of little souls. Okay, if you were to make it like a literal translation. But who are the faint-hearted? And if you were to write in the margin of your Bible, faint-hearted? And then you were to write the text, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. I think you uh, would find the faint-hearted that's primarily in Paul's mind. The little soul, the ones who are uh, not finding much strength in their Christian life. I think specifically he's describing here those who are finding sexual self-control to be a difficult thing. Remember chapter 4 verses 3 through 8 was about holiness and our responsibility not to defraud our brothers and sisters in these matters. Who are the faint-hearted? I think he's describing those who find the Christian life to be overwhelming in the moral arena. They're overwhelmed by their own desires. And so what is your challenge then as a church? It is to support them, the text says. 
And that's a very powerful word. One commentator I read this week, his name is Richard Mayhew. He said the word support means to hold on to and not let go. In other words, we must stand by weak believers in their difficult moments. Support the weak. Of course, there are all kinds of different applications I could make here, but I just would ask you to think about your own relationships. You cannot be everything that God wants you to be as a Christian unless you have these sort of relationships where you come along someone who is weak in their Christian walk with God and you are holding on to them and you are not letting them go. Do you have relationships like that in church? You're just like so concerned for them, you just come right alongside them. I'm, I'm going to be here for you in these moments of weakness and trial and difficulty. For some of us, I think it will mean that we rearrange our schedules and calendars, right? That we're just too busy sometimes to have relationships this deep. I think a practical way for you to think about this right now would be to think about how do you approach adult Bible studies? You know, like even the class time, when you go to an adult Bible study, do you just go into like the back corner of the room and just like sit there and wait for other people to engage you? You sit in the corner in the back and, and not get involved in friendly conversations that God could use to enable you to get to know someone and to, to learn of their struggle? Do you have people in that group that you are encouraging and supporting and warning? If not, it simply starts, it can simply start with one conversation, with one relationship. I encourage you, start today. What relationship in this assembly can you cultivate today so that you would see them not just in class, but throughout the week, and you could come alongside of them? Hold on to them in their weakness and help them. I mean, do you have relationships like this? He then says, fifth, uh, be patient with them all. Um, I think actually I skipped over one. I think uh, just backing up a little bit, if he, I gave you some advice to mark in your Bible and I totally messed it up. I hope you didn't do that yet. Okay, who are the idle? I think it's four, nine through 12. Who are the faint-hearted? Okay, I think that's 4, 13 through 18. The little-souled ones are the ones who are afraid about dead, the dead in Christ, that they are disadvantaged and they will not see the Lord. Who are the weak? Okay, and this is what I've been talking about for a while. Verses 3 through 8, those who are morally weak. okay. But then uh, right after he says, he says, be patient with them all. Again, I think just kind of a, a summary. Be patient with every type of these people, whether they're idle or faint-hearted or weak. Show patience. Have a slow fuse with each one of them. And then finally, and do not retaliate. Verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
I mean, verse 15 is really challenging, again, for sake of time, but it's got two parts, right? One, I think we're better at than the other. The first part, sort of, right? Do not repay evil for evil. Okay, so someone does evil to me, okay, I'm challenged, don't repay it. Okay, I got that. That's, but the text goes further. Not only are we not to repay them, we are to do good to them. Do good to them. Uh, a challenge here. And so in these verses, I think, verses 13b through verse 15 here, Paul lays out a beautiful vision for the church. This church should care for its leaders and should demonstrate care for other believers. And I know this can be exhausting. So how can this sort of harmony be possible? How can we do this? And I think that's what verses 16 through 18 are about. How is this possible? And so where I think this text is going is in the next three verses, we, Paul will talk about how we relate to God. So what Paul does, in my opinion, this is point three, he will move to a more fundamental relationship that must be right if we expect to have right relationships with other people. And the more fundamental relationship is with God. So that's point three, right relationship with God. In verses 16 through 18, Paul gives three rapid-fire imperatives that must characterize our relationship to God. We must rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I think that last phrase, for this is God's will, shows that these three commands are primarily about your relationship to obeying God's will or your relationship to God. And so we just look at them quickly. Uh, The first one is we are given the command to rejoice evermore, rejoice always. The Christian life for Paul is ultimately one of rejoicing and joy. Uh, There are some ways in which I think we should you know, or could be careful of the ministries of certain men or evangelical preachers and teachers of Scripture, one that I do enjoy for the, just about the most part, but everything he says or does is uh, John Piper's ministry. And John Piper is known for emphasizing this, joy. Joy being an, an essential mark of the Christian life and experience. I think that this text uh, says it here. I want you to think of a few things or consider a few things about this, this little two-word command, rejoice always. First, notice that Paul gives exhaustive temporal m- markers here with each of these commands. Sorry, verse 16. Rejoice when? Always. Pray when or how? Without ceasing. Give thanks in everything. Exhaustive. Okay, so the, the words rejoice always. I want you to notice as well that the word rejoice is a verb and not a noun. You say, well, what's, why is that important? I, I think what he's doing with this is uh, he's saying that Christian life should be one in which we are rejoicing or we rejoice, not that we get joy or possess joy. So in other words, this is a command. This is a determination from believers. This is a direction that we should be facing, not an object that we possess or attempt to pursue necessarily. So it's a verb. Rejoice, it's a command, rejoice always. And 
And then I want you to see as well that this does not mean, I think, that we are never sorrowful. Uh, I won't take the time to demonstrate all of this, but you could go to different passages, even in Paul's own writing, where he talks about having sorrow or much sorrow. I don't think that Paul would be contradicting himself. He says, rejoice always, and then he says, he talks about the sort of sorrow that believers sometimes experience when they lose a loved one, for instance. I think of the psalmist. There are many psalms that are filled with lamentation and mourning where the psalmist pours his heart out to God. I don't think he's disobeying the command to rejoice always at that text, if he would known of that command. But, uh, but that these two things are not opposite things, but you can do both, I think, even at the same time. Even in our sorrow, we can be always rejoicing. And so I think this is a commitment to be rejoicing even in our sorrow or our loss or our pain or our suffering. Okay, so Paul gives this command. Be rejoicing always. And that leads us to a question. And the question I have about that is, how? Like, how can you be rejoicing always? And uh, as I studied that or thought about this, that this week, I think he answers that in the next two commands. How can Christians be rejoicing always? The key to rejoicing like this is to pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks to God. Okay, so we look at verse 17, the second command. Pray without ceasing. To experience joy always, we should be praying and not giving up. We should be praying without ceasing. You know, if I look at this little verse, right, pray without ceasing, and I can't help but think, what does without ceasing mean? Because that's like, that seems like it's a lot. One preacher said it uh, this way as he's describing this. He said, it means to lean on God all the time. I'd say it this way, we are to live in constant awareness of our dependence upon God. This means that we are praying continually. So if joy is an essential characteristic of the Christian life, so too is prayer. We might wonder why many in our church today struggle with a lack of joy. I wonder if it's because of a lack of prayer. And reading through this this week and you know, trying to think through the text, I, I've, you know, very, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. I've tried to, to fill moments of my day this week with more prayer. So one of my habits is, you know, I get in the car, I'll turn on the radio or I listen to a podcast or something and fill that silence with singing or meditation or thoughts. But this week I just, you know, turn it all off get in the car, and talk with God. Just talk with God. Perhaps you could try that this week. And not just in the car, throughout the day, praying without ceasing. Finally, he says, be grateful in everything. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I want you to notice here that Paul's not sugarcoating what the Thessalonians are going through. He knows the suffering that they're facing. This church was facing severe hardship. They were in, engaged in confrontation of stubborn sinners. They're trying to help morally weak believers. Life for them was hard. 
And so that's why it's important for us to see that Paul does not say to give thanks for all things. He says we are to give thanks in all things. And so sometimes difficult times will come into our lives as followers of Christ. We do not need to give thank, thanksgiving for the difficulties, but we should thank God for what he is doing in them and in our lives through them. And then Paul closes with, you know, we should be thankful in all these situations because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. This is what our God wants from us. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every circumstance that you face. Today we have seen the importance of right relationships. If we're going to please God, I think it starts with being rightly related to God, verses 16 through 18. But then it also includes the way we relate to other believers and church leaders. Don't think. If it weren't for other people, I could really live the Christian life. No, may God fix our hearts on the value of right relationships for spiritual growth and Christian living. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these commands. There are many of them here. There's so many things to focus on in this text, but uh, thank you, Lord, how you revealed in the passage how we should relate to different people, how we should relate to church leaders, how we should relate to other believers, whether they're faint-hearted or or weak, or idle, or any of them. And then how we're to relate to you. I pray, Lord, that as we work through these things, we first might be reminded that faithful is he who calls you. He will also do it. That you, through the Spirit, will sanctify us in these ways. But Lord, I pray as well that we would truly evaluate our relationships. Father, perhaps there are some brothers or sisters in Christ in this church who don't have deep relationships with others. It'd be hard for them to come up with the name of a weak believer that they're helping. Or an anxious believer that they're encouraging. Father, I pray that you would help us to have deeper relationships like this in our assembly. But we need this, need this for the glory and honor of your own name. And we thank you for doing this work, for pointing this out to us. And I pray that you give us grace to live it. In Jesus' name.